Good evening. This Saturday night, one of my favorite nights of the whole year because I get an extra hour of sleep. Isn't that awesome? So uh, be sure to uh, adjust the clock before you go to bed on Saturday night. And also, Saturday night's our harvest um, celebration here. A huge event. Um, Invite your friends, invite neighbors, invite kids. It's going to be a safe alternative um, to what a lot of folks get involved with on what they call Halloween night. Um, This is a harvest Christian celebration over here. Lots of games, lots of activities, lots of fun. That will be starting at 5 o'clock Saturday night. It'll go all the way through 9. And uh, for those of you who are helping out, um, be sure to get there a little bit on a little early and get your assignments and, and all of that. And we'll pray for a great uh, time of harvest. Let's look in our Bibles tonight at Genesis chapter 14. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 14. And we're going to move around a bit tonight. Tonight we're going to meet one of the most mysterious characters in all of the Bible. So let's pray for wisdom. God, we ask for your wisdom now as we look at your word. Understanding this to be your word. And and we're, we're thankful for how perfectly it fits together. I pray, Father, that you would speak in a wonderful way to us tonight, right where we need it. Bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a picture of a Catholic cathedral in the city of Chartres. That's in France, about 50 miles north of Paris. And it's a museum of sort. It, it, it has religious relics in it. It has various paintings in it and statues It was said at one time to even have a tunic that was worn by the Virgin Mary at some point. You can go in there and you can check it out. And you notice that um, there's these statues that are built in to the pillars and, and various doorways as you go through. And there's an interesting one that I wanted to show you tonight. There's five characters in the scripture that you'll find at that cathedral. I'm going to start from right to left. On the right, that is King David. Next to him is Samuel, prophet Samuel, about to sacrifice a lamb. In the middle there, you have Moses. Next to Moses on the left, you have Abraham, and you notice that he's sort of holding his son Isaac there. And he's gazing to the guy on his right, our left. Who is that guy? Who is that character? It's a guy by the name of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Melchizedek who? Melchizedek. Very, very mysterious, but very important figure in the scripture. And that's who we are going to talk about tonight in this peak of the scripture. Melchizedek. Now, there's only three verses that are dedicated to Melchizedek. Only three verses that speak of him in the history of the Old Testament. And we're going to read those tonight. 
But before we do, let me give you just a little bit of background. In Genesis chapter 14, Abram has come into the promised land. He's left everything. And you remember he brought Lot with him? So Abram and Lot, they grew in the promised land. And their families, their tribes started to sort of fight over territory. And Abram finally told Lot, listen, we need to split. You pick whichever direction you want to go. You can go and I'll stay wherever you don't choose. And so, of course, Lot picked the best part of the land, right? He went down south in near the Dead Sea region. The only thing is he camped and became a part of the Sodom and Gomorrah kingdoms. And as Lot and his family um, sort of dwelt there, they became a part of actually five kingdoms down south, Sodom, Gomorrah, and three other cities, a pretty tight-knit alliance. There was another alliance that was further up north. Four kingdoms had made an alliance, and the king of that alliance was Kedarlaomer, and they were in charge of the five kingdoms down south where Lot had become a part of. Well, Sodom and Gomorrah sort of rebelled, And so this king from the north came down south and exerted power upon them, defeated them. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah sort of split. They took off on their own people. Their kingdoms were looted. This king of the north took spoils and the people back north, including Lot and his family. Well, Abraham found out about that, and Abraham took action. He armed 318 trained servants. I think they were commandos. And they pursued this alliance that had ransacked and taken people captive. They pursued these kings 120 miles north all the way, and then during a night operation, Abraham and these 318 Rambo type guys went in and defeated the kings, took all of the loot, recovered everything that had been stolen, and all of the men and women and children that had been taken captive, including Lot and all of his family, Abram rescued. And so then they bring him, they bring everybody back down south. And when Abram's coming home, back to the promised land, in victory as a hero, Melchizedek meets him. Look what it says of him in verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him. This is Melchizedek blessing Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. Those are the only three verses in Genesis, in the Old Testament, concerning the history of Melchizedek. Three verses. So here, Abram's coming back, and this guy comes out, and notice what we find out about him. Melchizedek is the king of what? Salem. Salem is the city that will eventually become known as Jerusalem. Melchizedek is the very first king in all of history of the city of Jerusalem. Very interesting. Melchizedek, his name literally means king of righteousness. Also, the play on words there where he's the king of Salem. Salem is peace. So he is the king of righteousness and the king 
of peace. Here is a very special king, a mysterious guy, who is the king of righteousness and peace. Look what it also says about him in verse 18. He was the priest of God most high. Now I want you to understand this is the very first time in the scripture that we have the word priest. This is the very first priest in the Bible. What's a priest? Someone who is a mentor, someone who is a mediator between God and man, somebody who would represent God to people and also represent men before God. First one. Melchizedek. Now understand this. He is a priest and a king. That's a lot of power if that's in one person, right? Separation of state and religion. If you have one ruler who is like the head honcho, religious guy and government guy, that can be a lot of power. And in fact, later on in the priesthood established under Moses and Aaron... You couldn't be a king and a priest. They were strictly separated, right? Melchizedek was a king and a priest in a very unique, special position of authority. Now, I want you to notice also, it says in verse 18, he was the priest of God most high. That is a very general, almost universal term for God. El Elyon. This is not the covenant name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the one that was associated with the nation of Israel. This is a very universal. So here's this priest of God, most high, able to mediate between God and any group. The first priest, before there was a priesthood in Israel. Notice what it also says there in verse 18. This guy brought out bread and wine. So here Abram comes home with all of his warriors and and all of this crew that's been rescued. And the priest brings out bread and wine to sustain them, to give them strength. Now, Bread and wine, does that ring a bell? Is that anything that we might run into later on in the New Testament? Symbolic of the body of Christ and shed blood of Christ? Very, very interesting. Okay, so then what does this guy do? He blesses Abram. So he raises his hand like we see in this picture and and probably Abram bowed before him and he proclaims a blessing upon Abram and Abram let it happen. Not only did Abram let it happen, after it was done, Abram tithed to Melchizedek, gave him 10% of the spoil. All the loot that they had recovered and the loot that they probably got in winning the war. They come back and he gives 10% to this priest king of Salem. Showing that this is a very special guy, don't you think? Okay, now notice also that just three verses. There's no mention of Melchizedek's parents. There's no mention of a genealogy. By the way, in Genesis, you find genealogies all over the place, right? Not for Melchizedek. There's no mention of his parents. There's no mention of his birth date. There's no mention of his death. He's just sort of there. Right? Just sort of shows up on the scene. Who do you think Melchizedek points to? Who is he a picture of? Who's he a type of? Very, very clear. He represents Jesus, doesn't he? 
In fact, there are many people that believe this is actually what's called a Christophany, which is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, pre-Bethlehem, pre-incarnation. It could be. This very important figure showing up in the 14th chapter of the Bible. Melchizedek. Okay, now I want to focus more on Melchizedek, but notice quickly, look in verse 21, that another king came to see Abram. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me. So here comes the king of Sodom, who, by the way, hid when his people were under attack. And now that Abram's gone out and rescued the people and brought all the spoil back, the king comes out and says, hey, thanks. And he says, give us the people. You keep the spoils. And I love, Abram said, no deal. I won't take anything from you. I don't want anybody to think that you made me rich in any way. And by the way, he didn't agree to giving the people to Sodom either. He said no to the whole deal. Now, some of those people could have stayed with Abram. Many of them, unfortunately, went with the king of Sodom, including Lot. Right? He'd show up there later. But now this king of Sodom, who who does he represent? Another king, right? Another, the enemy. Great picture of the wicked ruler of this world. And I just find it really chilling what he says to Abram in verse 21. Give me the persons and take the goods for yourselves. Literally in the Hebrew, give me the souls. Give me the souls. You can have all the toys. You can have all the toys. Give me the souls. Man, that's chilling to me because I think Satan still does that today. Satan wants souls. Satan wants people. And he tries to get God's people who know how to get souls to the right person for salvation. He tries to get God's people to focus on toys. The goods of this world. We get all caught up in the materialism of this world. And Satan is like, yeah, focus on the toys. I'll focus on the souls. Do you worry about souls? Christian, when's the last time you agonized over souls? People's lives who are broken down. And you have the answer. Or are you so focused on the material things, the goods of this world? Well, let's get back to Melchizedek. So three verses here. We don't hear anything about Melchizedek again until a thousand years later. A thousand years later, King David will write about Melchizedek in one verse, in one psalm. Psalm 110. Would you turn there with me? Psalm 110. Now I want you to know that Psalm 110 is one of the most famous messianic psalms in the entire Bible. This is the psalm that is quoted the most in the New Testament. Psalm 110 is about the Messiah who will come. Jesus quotes from this psalm. Paul quotes from this psalm. This psalm is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. This is a key messianic psalm. This is clearly, the rabbis of the day even said, this is speaking of the Messiah who would come. 
This is about the Messiah who would come. Let's read it. Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent concerning the Messiah who is coming. You are a priest forever, according to the order of whom? Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Now, this is a psalm that speaks of the coming Messiah. And clearly, this is speaking of the second coming of Jesus. When he comes again, he's not coming as the cute little baby. When he comes the second time, he comes as the warrior. And he defeats all of the enemies. And he sets up his kingdom. And this psalm is speaking of that second advent. But look what it says of the Messiah. In verse 4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So when this Messiah comes, he's going to be a priest like Melchizedek. According to the manner of Melchizedek. And he'll be so forever. Forever. Now this is a prediction. This is a prophecy. We know Jesus is the Messiah. When Jesus comes, he'll be that. Okay, now this was something really radical for David to write. And it's, it's amazing that it's in this most popular Messianic psalm. This is a song that would have been sung in the courts of the temple that existed in Jerusalem. When David wrote this, there was a priesthood in place. The Levitical priesthood. Right? There was a temple in Jerusalem. They were doing sacrifices. There were priests ministering there in the temple. Remember that the law was very clear as who could be a priest, who could serve the Lord in the temple. What tribe did you have to be from? Levi. Only the Levites could serve in the temple. Very particular about your genealogy. You had to prove that you were from the tribe of Levi. And if you wanted to be a priest, you had to prove your genealogy back to Aaron, the first high priest. Okay, so when David wrote this, there was a priesthood according to the order of Aaron. You with me? And here David says, when the Messiah shows up, he'll come according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, he won't be a part of the Levitical priesthood. That won't matter to him. None of those requirements will apply to him. Very important. We meet Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. And here in Psalm 110, the Messiah, when he comes, will be a priest like Melchizedek. Okay, four verses In the Old Testament concerning Melchizedek, three in Genesis chapter 14, one verse in Psalm 110. A thousand years later, Melchizedek shows up again in Scripture. Does anybody know where he shows up? The book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament. His name is mentioned frequently in chapters 5 through 7 of Hebrews. And in fact, I'd like you to turn now to Hebrews chapter 7. 
Turn with me there. Everybody there? It's important for you to read this. Now, this is a very interesting book. This was written right in the early part of church history when many Jews were becoming Christians. Okay? And this book was written at a time when there was still a temple in Jerusalem and there was still a Levitical priesthood. Animals were being sacrificed. The priesthood was in action. Jews were becoming Christians and then wondering, well, should we still be a part of the temple sacrifice, right? And many false teachers would come along and say, yep, you're a Christian, but you also need to be a Jew. And so you should go and you should participate in the temple sacrifices and do exactly what you're supposed to do according to the law of Moses. Submit to the priesthood of the Old Testament, right? Even though you're a Christian. And so they're being told that. And the writer of Hebrews says to the Jews, don't do that. Don't go back. Jesus has replaced that other priesthood. Jesus has replaced that law. Jesus has replaced all of that. What Jesus has done annuls. All of the priesthood activity of the Old Testament under Judaism, according to Aaron, Levi, all that you find in the Old Testament. Okay, so the writer of this book is trying to tell Jews that, and the Jews would then say, well, what justification do you have from the scripture? Okay, it's great, you want us to leave it at all, but prove it to me from the scripture. Does the Old Testament say anything about eventually leaving that priesthood established by Moses? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews says, listen, Jesus has come, and he has come in the order of Melchizedek which is much better and grander than the order of the other priesthood. Okay, look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Does all this sound familiar? To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, First being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, remains a priest continually. So all the facts about Melchizedek. Remember Melchizedek. He came. He's the king of Salem. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He is the priest of God most high. He's without genealogy. Again, making the point that Melchizedek is very, very special. And great. Look at verse 4. Now consider how great this man was. To whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham. And blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi who received tithes paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak... 
For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Isn't that wild? So he's saying Melchizedek was special and very, very great. Greater than Abraham. He blessed Abraham. The lesser is blessed by that which is superior. Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek, showing that Melchizedek was in a greater position. Do you follow the argument? Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And not only that, he's greater than Levi, who came from Abraham. In a sense, the entire order of Aaron and the order of Levi, that entire Old Testament priesthood, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Thereby showing that they're in a lesser role. So the writer of Hebrews would say to the Jewish people who were tempted to go back to the order of Aaron and and, and the Levites and all, don't do that. Melchizedek's better. And the whole argument is when Jesus came, as was prophesied in the Old Testament, he'd come according to the order of Melchizedek. He's come. The old system is now mute. It's obsolete. Keep reading. Look at verse 11. Therefore... If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, read this carefully, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of whom? Of Aaron. So if, if, if that priesthood under the law of Moses was meant to perfect, when the Messiah comes, why wouldn't he come as a priest according to the order of that priesthood. But he didn't. He came according to the order of Melchizedek outside that priesthood, implying that that priesthood is weak. Didn't work. Keep reading. For the priesthood being changed, verse 12, of necessity... There is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from what tribe? Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now look at verse 18. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Do you see what it's being said? The old thing is invalid. It's weak. It's unprofitable. With the coming of Jesus, that's all been replaced. Skip down to verse 23. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Now, I love that. Under the old priesthood, you had different priests serving until they died. And then another priest would come, right? There's death. And the people that served in that priesthood, the men that served in that priesthood, were not perfect. They had to give sacrifices for their own sins. 
Verse 24, but he, Jesus, who came in the different order, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who, look at this, is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The whole point now. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus has replaced And please understand that this was always the plan from the beginning. Genesis chapter 14. So the big question that lots of people ask then is why did God command Israel to have this law? To have this priesthood? To sacrifice for all of those years and have all of that tradition only to have it be replaced later. Why did God give the law to Israel? Why did God give the priesthood to Israel? Why? The New Testament tells us why. Book of Romans. Paul says the law was given to reveal sin. The priesthood was given to reveal sin. The idea is, this is the best way I've been able to think about it. God chose the nation of Israel as an experiment to show something, to prove something beyond a shadow of a doubt. And you know what the proof is? We are sinners. Here's a nation where if you think about it, God literally spoke to them and wrote down, here's what you need to do. This, 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 this. There would be absolutely no question as to what God would require. Here's what I expect of you. This, 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 this. And here's a priesthood for you should you blow it. Do this, 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 this. And even with all of that, did Israel keep it? They broke the law, they broke the priesthood. This was God showing that no matter what might be given to man, no matter what clarity might be given to man, man fails. Man fails. We fail as priests. We can't keep the law. We are utterly sinful. And the whole purpose of the law and that whole priesthood and all of that was to eventually point people to the one who could save them. And forgive them. Jesus. Our high priest. Do you understand that without Jesus, we are without hope? If Jesus had not come, we're without hope. There's no way we could have done anything to get right with God. There's no human priest. There's no law. There's no religion. There's no ritual. Nothing. That we can come up with to help ourselves. We all needed Jesus. And you know what? It's so cool. Look at the grace of Jesus. He came. He came. He left heaven. 
He gave his life. He did have his body broken and his blood shed, which we remember in the elements of communion. So beautifully signified in Genesis chapter 14 with Melchizedek bringing bread and wine. Jesus is the only one who can forgive our sins. Folks, Jesus is the only king who can really give us righteousness and peace. The whole Bible points to this truth that we are absolutely unable to help ourselves, but God has intervened and sent a high priest, a savior. And so the writer of Hebrews would say, don't go to that Old Testament priesthood. Why would you go back to the priesthood? Why? And I'm sad to report tonight that there are many Christians who have gone back to a priesthood. Why? Jesus replaced the priesthood. We got Catholic priests, we got Lutheran priests, Episcopalian priests, female priests. We got priests holding insert senses and blowing smoke. (laughs) Didn't mean it that way. We got very, very religious looking men wearing robes. And caps. And a lot of people looking at these people and saying, wow. And we have a lot of people putting their hope in human priests. And I'm not just picking on one denomination. You find it across the board in many, many different Christian denominations. Here's a priest in a third world country sprinkling holy water on a crowd that's gathered. Why? 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 Give the people the water to drink. (laughs) Why are there a whole bunch of people that believe that that's a really big deal? Carrying the incense and the smoke. And then here we have confession. Sitting before a priest confessing your sins before a priest and a human priest absolving you of your sins. How? Why? Go back to Genesis 14. There's only one priest. And that priest is Jesus. And man, I'm telling you, if you're putting your trust and your faith in a human priest, you're putting your faith and trust in someone that can't help you. If you're putting your hope and faith and trust in Jesus Christ, can't help you. He'll save you. As it says there in, 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 in the chapter 7 of Hebrews, he saves to the uttermost. He's the real deal.
I don't rely on any other human being for my salvation. I don't. You can't get salvation through another human being. And this whole idea of some human priest who's fallen and sinful being able to somehow get you right with God. You want to bank your eternity on that? Not me. As I read the New Testament, folks, I read the fact that because of what Jesus has done at the cross, he has opened the way. All of us have equal access to God. The scripture says, come boldly to the throne of grace. You can go directly to Jesus. You can go directly now to God through Jesus Christ. You don't have to go through a priest. You've got a priest. Don't be deceived. Settle for the real thing. Only embrace the real one that can save you and help you. The whole Bible points to the need of Jesus to come and be our Savior. Now, I think that there are a lot of people, when they think of Christianity, there are some Christians who think of it as kind of a bureaucracy, and you might see it in some denominations, where there's different levels, okay, and you, you, you sort of get to God through different levels. You don't. You get to God through Jesus. One level. So I do see in the Christian faith a very personal, individual element. See, a lot of people think I can get to God by relying on my grandma. Right? You ever, I've, I've asked people, you're, you see, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, my grandma's a Christian. <laughs> or I go to this church. Or I listen to that pastor. Or I'm a part of this denomination. Or I've gone through this religious hoop. You become a Christian by personally, individually, inviting Jesus to be your Savior. You go to Him. He saves you. And He walks with you. And He never leaves you or forsakes you. Have you personally made that decision? Let's close it right there. Why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Lord, I thank you for the promise that's so clear in your word that you want a personal friendship with us. You want a personal relationship with us. Father, that you are not interested that we become involved in some religious bureaucracy. You came, you left heaven, and you died on the cross that we might have a personal relationship with you. That we might be friends with you. 
that we might have our sins forgiven, that we might become sons and daughters in your family, that we might become citizens of heaven. And Lord, we know that you paid the price to make that possible. You gave your very life for our sins. You made it possible for all of our sins to be forgiven, to be washed away, cleaned up, gone forever. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, you have saved us into a wonderful family with lots of brothers and sisters in Christ and and leaders that can be a support. Lord, how we can encourage one another and equip one another and disciple one another. But all in the same pursuit of getting to know you better. Of you being number one in our lives. We thank you for this. And Lord, tonight I want to pray for anyone here who has never received you. Now, heads bowed, eyes closed. Listen, have you personally, personally invited Jesus to be your Savior? Are you resting your eternity on what Christ has done? I give you that invitation tonight if you've never done so pray this prayer with me say Lord Jesus be my savior I invite you right now personally to be my savior wash away my sins thank you for dying on the cross for my sins be my high priest Be my Lord, be my King, be my everything. Make me a child in your family. Fill me with your spirit and help me to live my life in a way that pleases you and leads others to you. We give all this to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. We're going to have counselors up here in the front. If you prayed to receive Christ, um, please come forward and share that with one of us so we can help you in your walk with Christ. If you have any questions or need prayer for any other thing, we're going to be up here. We'll be available to talk with you. Let's close with this. (laughs)